Welcome to the fourth episode of Psych Mike. I'm your host, Frankie. And I'm Emily. And for today's episode, we'll be focusing on the fascinating world of music psychology. We are honored here today to have Professor Nikki Rickards here. Um, Professor Nikki Rickards is a renowned expert in music psychology and has conducted extensive research on relationships between music and emotion. Welcome, Professor, and thank you for joining us today. Can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Thank you so much for having me. Great to have a chat with you both and really excited to have a, a talk about music psychology, one of my favourite subjects. So yeah, my name's Nikki and I'm currently a, a professor for the Centre for Wellbeing Science at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education. I've been here just a month, so learning my way around. Um, so my background in music psychology has gone for quite a few decades and it's probably one of my great passions. Some of the things that I, I love most are researching and teaching are around music psychology. So really good to have a talk about it. Um, I guess the, the passion at the moment comes from wellbeing because I'm working within the, the Centre for Wellbeing Science. One of the main things that that centre uh, revolves around is learning how to teach other people or support other people to manage, improve, optimise their wellbeing. So if we think about music psychology, what a great nexus, huh? You know, how do we use music to help people improve their well-being and learn how to uh, develop new skills, new ways of really optimising their health? So it's a perfect combination for me. I'm curious, what or who inspired you to enter this field? Probably the first inspiration I had for moving into music psychology came from my background. I've been doing a lot of work in neuroscience. So one of the main reasons I got into psychology was I was just fascinated with um, how we um, embody emotions, mainly emotions. So it was a very personal uh, quest that I thought it was fascinating that we could see emotions in the brain and in the body. And I wanted to learn more about that. So I'd been studying that for a while. My PhD was in neuroscience, looking at neuroscientific mechanisms of memory. Um, but at some point I stopped and thought, where else do I want to go? What, what else really inspires me and what else would I like to apply this sort of neuroscience background to? And I loved music. And one of the things that I kept feeling was the incredible power of music to do things to us. And it was a very personal feeling that I had around that. So I was really fortunate early on to have some discussions actually over here at University of Melbourne with um, you know, an amazing man, Geoffrey Pressing, and uh, Professor Pressing, who was starting to do work in music psychology. Um, he was an, an auditory uh, psychologist, neuroscientist, and he gathered a lot of people around who were interested in music together, and we had some fascinating you know, seminars that we'd all just sit and talk about everything, and it was incredibly inspiring, and that's pretty much when I, I discovered that this is where I wanted to keep researching, so that's what started my, my interest in music psychology way back in the 90s. Personally, I haven't taken the music psychology class, but I'm very interested in it. Um, how would you describe the class and like the contents of the class to someone who was sort of debating whether or not they were going to take it? Take it. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, you know, music psychology, you probably have heard a lot of people sort of say it's one of the most complex things. Uh, music itself is so complex, it activates more parts of the brain than any other activity. And when we try to study it, it's the same thing. It gets so complex there are so many different ways you can look at it so in psychology we know we have all these different streams different disciplines you can study psychology by uh, looking at developmental approaches and looking at how people develop skills you can do that with music as well looking at infants and how they respond to music and how you start developing are things innate do you develop you know certain characteristics preferences responses to music that all happens in developmental psychology you can look at it from a biological perspective, as I've said. That was very much my entry into the field. You can look at it from social um, perspective, perspectives. Ethnomusicology looks at cultures. So it, it really suits everyone, whatever your passion is. And any psychology student knows they resonate more with one area than another. And you can really focus on that. Individual differences, personality, intelligence. You can look at all of those through a music psychology lens. So... Yeah, I think it's fascinating um, for anyone and not only that you can come from different angles, I think once you get into a field, even if you focus or you think you're focusing on one narrow, kind of narrow field, it just keeps getting more and more complex. I used to love um, chaos theory. I don't know if you know much about the, the fractal patterns. They had these beautiful pictures that helped illustrate chaos theory called fractals and they were very complex, beautiful paisley patterns. And what 
the um, the theory showed that is when you zoomed into these fractal patterns, they just kept getting just as they were just as complex at every level of zooming in, and you could go forever, and it would just stay more and more complex. And that's exactly what happens with music psychology. You think you're narrowing in, but it just gets more and more complex the deeper you go. So biological psychology, I started looking at emotions, thinking I was getting narrower, not looking at everything in biological psychology of music. I thought I was narrowing it down just to emotions. And that just got wider and wider. <laughs> there were just so many different ways to look at it. Um, and then you try to focus again and it just it just keeps getting richer and richer. There's just so much to look at. So, yeah. Mm. Might just have to enrol next time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sold. Listening to it in this way, even though I'm taking the class, I'm like, this is a great field. And like, I want to keep doing this. Yeah. Awesome. That's great. Well, you've convinced me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually curious, what research are you currently doing with music and well-being specifically? So I've, I've actually spent quite a bit of time recently away from music psychology. So I've been working on digital health or digital mental health and well-being. So that's very much looking at technology and how we can use that to often self-manage well-being a bit more, moving some of the responsibility for, for mental health and well-being away from the very pressed public health system and really trying to understand more how people want to manage their own well-being. And there's particularly amongst young people, a real desire to do that. A lot of people don't seek professional help because they feel like they either should manage their own issues or they want to, that that's something that they want to have agency and control over, which is wonderful, but I don't know if we support that process enough. So there's a lack of information about how to do that. So given that's what I've been doing, I've worked a lot in areas that I think are engaging for young people, so music was definitely the first of those. I've worked a lot in smartphone, using smartphone apps and developing apps and evaluating how they might be used better. Now coming back to um, music psychology, I think the two work really well and I've done some work with using apps and, and um, mental, mental health apps and wellbeing apps to try to uh, utilise music a little bit more and some of the apps we've got actually try to monitor how people feel while they're listening, very naturalistic to their own playlists in everyday life and then trying to report how they feel about that and try in that way we try to understand when does music actually help, when does it not, when might it actually be um, not the best time to be using that type of music. That's really hard to understand unless you're actually monitoring people as they're listening to music and feeling the feelings. So that's one area that's starting to move into. And that sort of follows probably a lot of the work I've done, which has been quite you know, personal looking, coming from my own interest in understanding what music's doing to our emotions. I think the other area that I'm starting to move into is probably more outward looking, starting to understand how music helps us connect to other people and trying to harness the great power of um, bonding that happens in, in festivals and concerts and amongst audiences and see how we might use that to, to further well-being and belonging and reduce loneliness. So there are a couple of areas that I'm starting to work on. Yeah. Do you have any specific advice for any listeners right now who might be in that kind of boat of wanting to take more responsibility for their own mental well-being? Yeah, great question. Um, I think one of the... It depends what what sort of um, tools you want to use. There's a lot of help out there. There's some amazing resources in terms of you know websites like Beyond Blue and Headspace that provide a lot of information, and they do try to foster um, a whole range of strategies um, and tools and resources that you do. It requires a bit of work because you've got to find what works for you, and there's a lot of um, a lot of potential resources you could use and I think one of the problems at the moment for people wanting to seek out that support for themselves is they're a bit overwhelmed. They're, there's a lot that's not going to work for them and I think one of the responsibilities for um, for researchers and practitioners in this field and centres like the Centre for Wellbeing Science is to try to curate and tailor some of that information so it's much more accessible that someone can go into a, a website gateway perhaps a short little questionnaire to sort of tailor what I'm trying to do, what my situation is, and to then get a much smaller pool of resources that fit them much more. We talk about it as um, person activity fit, trying to tailor um, content more specifically for what's going to work for a certain person. So 
if we come back to music, we know that people engage with music in so many different ways. And I, I'm really interested in using music for social reasons, but my partner wants to listen to it on his own. He, he can't think of anything worse than having to share his personal, you know, emotional experience with a whole lot of other people. You know, it just doesn't work. So everyone has different ways to, to engage with music. And there's some great resources out there that we could utilise to try to tap that first and say, okay, this is kind of, it's kind of like a personality questionnaire that you sort of do with music. And then you could hopefully using digital technology, go and search out there. You know, AI can decide which bits are going to work for this type of person. That, that's sort of a bit of an ideal goal for me, that we could curate all that information and tailor it so someone who does want to self-manage is actually getting appropriate material for them. They're not going to be overwhelmed by having so much, which is currently out there. Um, it's going to be safe, which is another big issue. A lot of the resources, for instance, in the app world, majority of them aren't necessarily safe or uh, you know privacy and security you know aware so trying to do that filtering for people to make it much easier to self-manage is a goal I don't think we're quite there yet but I'd encourage people who want to to use those resources that are out there um, and just be open to not being passive to what they do with something like music or other tools they use try to reflect and become aware of how the things they're trying to cope or to self-manage are making them feel. And I think we often try things. People are really good at saying, right, I need to call a friend or I need to go out and have a run or, um, you know, I'll try something to, to manage how I'm feeling. I don't think we're so good afterwards reflecting on that and saying, oh, how do I feel? Oh, actually, I feel just as bad. Actually, I feel worse. <laughs> you know, I'm not we don't do that reflection. So we, we repeat the same mistakes. Next time we'll go and see that same person that makes us feel worse rather than better. So I really would recommend people add that time to reflect on it afterwards and try to improve their strategies over time rather than just repeating the same old thing. And, you, you know, the classic is something like drugs or alcohol, you know, if we just reflect afterwards and say, look, that wasn't the best way to handle it, maybe we wouldn't do it again, but we don't reflect and we repeat the same pattern. Yeah. Talking about reflecting, sometimes, for example, when I'm feeling down, I'll put on a playlist of sad songs and it will make me feel worse and a little bit, maybe a little better afterwards. So I'm not sure what reflecting I'm going through. What can you say about like people who use, because I know so many people who, when they're feeling down, will listen to more songs that will make them feel more doubt. Yeah, I have like five sad playlists. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just wondering, is there something about that? Sure. Yeah, it's it's a really um, a frequent thing we do. It's very natural. You know, if you're feeling sad <laughs> or if you're feeling angry, um, to go and find seek out music that matches your mood. Um, and there's the, uh, there, there's so much out there saying, oh, that's a bad thing. And there is some research saying it can be a bad thing. There's also a lot of research saying it can be a great thing. So it's how you use it and what you do with it. I think the, the common way that people will do it, seek out a song. That first listening, the, the first music you're listening to when you're feeling sad, there's a whole lot of positive things that that does. It tells you you're not the only person who's feeling that way. You know, you're not alone. There are other people who are feeling that way. That's very validating. That makes you feel, um, you know, it, it's okay, which is the first thing you want to tell someone who's, you know, <laughs> experiencing problems. It's okay. It's absolutely fine to feel that way. So music does that really well. And you hear someone else talking about it in often an eloquent way with the music around the lyrics um, matches your emotion. You know, again, is very validating. You say, yeah, that's how I feel. Someone else is feeling that way. So that's a positive effect of listening to sad music. Um, the second part, depending on the type of song, is it can actually do some cognitive work. It can actually help just what CBT or acceptance commitment therapy does. It can actually help you work through what you're feeling. You might start labelling. Oh, I, I knew I was feeling bad, but I didn't realise I was feeling that type of sad, that I was feeling nostalgic or I was feeling a loss of something. You know, it helps you articulate or label the emotions you're feeling, which is one of the first steps to regulating your emotions, understanding and labelling it. So that's another great positive thing that it can do. Um, I think the other thing it can do is help you express that a little bit more. And I think that very much with angry music, it's one of the really important things that people bottle up. When you have that music, you go, yeah, <laughs> you sing it out, you get it out. And again, that, that can be really a positive thing. The big issue is what you do next. So if 
after the first song, you put on another sad and another sad <laughs> and another one. <laughs> and you keep, that's going to lead to rumination and that's not going to move you away from that. The, the trick, <laughs> and, and some artists do this beautifully within one song even, is to start off with the sad, help you work through it a little bit, might even suggest what they've done um, that you think, oh, okay, I could go from that way. They know how I'm feeling, but they still work that, that way. Um, or even if it doesn't happen in one song, find another song that's a little bit more positive afterwards and start moving yourself into a different direction. Um, this is in music therapy. That's called the ISO principle that tries to grade. You, know, you don't just put on a happy song. Nothing worse. If you're feeling sad, you don't want to hear the happy song. But you move it in a gradual way towards not bright and happy but something a little bit more positive. And as, as I say, there are some songs that... Um, they're my go-to songs. There's um, a song by a gang of youths called Do Not Let Your Spirit Wane that has it all in one package. starts off in very sad story, you know, a very difficult story, but comes out very inspirational. And within, you know, five minutes, I can move from <laughs> very negative to incredibly inspired and feeling much more positive about the world. Might have to add that one to my yeah. list. I'm putting that song on all my playlists. Um, we've talked a little bit about how music can help us through these emotions and everything. But I was wondering, is there more of like kind of a scientific way of explaining how music can evoke these really strong emotions in us? Mm, great question. And I think that's probably the question that I started with and was trying to understand. I, I think some of the, the really early work that um, I think captures the strong experience of music sort of parallel some of, um, you know, work in general psychology around peak experiences and, you know, Maslow's work on actualization, And there was a lot of subjective descriptions around these really strong, powerful experiences with music. In the music psychology field, there was a researcher called Alf Gabrielson and he wrote a book um, called Strong Experiences of Music and he just uh, collected a whole lot of qualitative reports from nearly a thousand people about their strongest experiences with music. Gorgeous to read it. It's just beautiful. You know, you, you sit in that space and you hear about all these different types of um, strong experiences with music. And we have everything with music, again, it was so complex. You know, you, I, I was looking for a common theme across these that would explain why they were so powerful, and y y you don't. There's just such a variety. There's a lot of spiritual um, contexts there, so a lot of people talking about their experiences within church, um, and I thought, oh, okay, so there's something otherworldly or outsidely that it needs to be, but then all these other experiences that were incredibly personal, some that were very, had to be social. So first of all, lots of different ways that music can become incredibly powerful. Um, so I, you, you're not going to come up with one answer, I guess is my first, first um, response. But then... As a biological psychologist, I started to look at, you know, the mechanisms and try to understand a little bit more, are the, the strong emotions that we have to music the same as other strong emotions? Because there were, at the time that I started, there was a lot of debate about that. A lot of people claiming that emotions to music weren't real, um, that they, there's no reason to have an emotion to music because music's not important for your survival. It's not necessary, so in terms of biological theories or evolutionary theories, it doesn't actually make sense. You know, music shouldn't be able to actually trigger a, a true emotion. Um, that obviously was very confusing <laughs> to anyone who, you know, has those responses. So looking into the biology, you can start delving down into why would music produce those responses. And a lot of them are, I guess, hijacking other survival responses. So a lot of the work that's been done trying to understand this really strong, effective music comes down to unpacking the musical elements and trying to understand why would we have that really strong response. And one of the very simple ones is it hijacks the, the fight-flight response that we have when we sense danger um, and we need to prepare our body. And when we prepare our body, it gets very aroused and you have this flood of, you know, you know, uh, arousal, you know, adrenaline, um, your heart rate pounding, you get all these feelings that we know in emotion theory intensifies the level of an emotion. So this is arousal theory. Why would music make us physiologically aroused? And that was one of the big questions that was around when, when I definitely started studying in this field. Um, and there, there's now a lot of understanding about what what's happening in the brain and it really does seem to mirror 
our responses to a whole range of other things. One is the fight-flight response. With music, you can use a whole lot of techniques to get people to wait and anticipate and prepare and then surprise them. And as soon as you surprise or do something unexpected, that actually activates the sympathetic nervous system and starts arousing us because it's saying, watch out, something's different. We didn't expect that. There might be danger. Music's just hijacking that. It's doing something similar and it it does it really cleverly. It does it in lots of little ways and sometimes really big ways. You know, when something drops and, you know, you get that big beat and you go, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's all part of that. And it can do it subtly. It can do it in little ways, really clever music. You know, really uh, varies the the degree to which it surprises you. So, So that's one way. And it also does it in a sort of craving drug addiction type way as well. We know that the same parts of the brain that are involved in craving or anticipating pleasure, and it might be from from drugs or food or other things, um, also get activated when listening to music and expecting and waiting for something special to happen. You know, the peak of the music you're waiting and then it happens and you get this different response that happens when people get that craving satisfied. The same thing happens with music. So even though music itself might not seem like a survival mechanism thing, it's using the same mechanisms in our brains to stimulate the same response in our body and therefore give us that same full response that you know that we have to other things. So it kind of makes sense. But um, yeah, clever music sort of really plays on that and will ramp up, the, will really use the arousal to intensify the level of emotion that you that it's creating. Yeah, yeah. that's definitely really interesting to think about. Mm. I never thought about it that way. <laughs> it hijacks <laughs> your emotions. Yeah. Uh, piggybacking off that, would you say like listening to music in a club or in a rave or like in a music festival, would that intensify even more your emotions and the involuntary responses of your body? Yeah, I think that's a great observation. And and again, uh, I've been really focused on these biological mechanisms, but I've mentioned there's all these other things that are going on. So as soon as you've got other people and you're a part of something else, okay, we've got all these other opportunities to um, have other systems hijacked or even just, um, you know, recruit other mechanisms or parts of you. I I think one of the, the big things that happens in a crowd is empathy, you know, you've got all these other people and, you know, if I look at someone else and their face is beaming and I'm feeling that, you know, it just doubles, you know, it intent triples. I look at the next person, another one. And, you know, you, you're getting this love, right? You know, you're getting this incredible feeling and everyone is feeling empathetic and understanding how everyone's feeling. And it's a really strong sense of belonging. So, again, that's that's another thing that makes you, you fly and, you know, your body feel good. Um, but it keeps ramping up, you know, having that sense that... Um, not only are you feeling great, but you're sensing other people um, having similar experiences, I think intensifies it. I think in a rave and, and some other settings, there are other factors going on. Obviously, drugs can you know, change the state of the body and can, you know, again, moderate the intensity of a feeling. Um, I think in some of those experiences too, there's something that we call transcendent experiences of music. And I don't think we've studied that so much it's another area I'd like to look into more but I think there's sort of a um, getting out of your body you know going outward going higher feelings part of something bigger and I don't think it's just described or, or explained by social interactions I think there's something again even higher and that might tap into some of those strong experiences of music in Alfred Gabrielson's book that were around spiritual it's not necessarily religion or the church it's something transcendent, making you feel above and beyond. And I think in raves and in some, you know, large festival feelings, you're starting to get into that realm that, you know, it's not that you just feel connected with all these other people. You're actually feeling part of something much bigger that, again, I think is incredibly special. Yeah, definitely. I've never thought about concerts like that because I love going to concerts personally um, because I just really like the feeling of, like, being with everyone together and it's like that kind of sense of anonymity that like no one's looking at me everyone's watching them and we're all just enjoying the music together yeah it's yeah, a great way to describe it <laughs> yeah yeah I super enjoy going to like big festivals and raves and anything like that because besides the music and feeling like this amazing feeling with the music I never thought about it being transcended somewhere else and I always feel so much better after 
because I just feel like listening to like my favorite music or watching my favorite artist like I feel like wow my well-being my state of mind everything is at 110% and the next day I'm like so sad that I miss I miss it so much and you feel the blues because you're like you were so happy watching your favorite artist with all your favorite people with people who like the same things you like so yeah wow great description <laughs> so you just buy the ticket to the next one. <laughs> yes, that's why I'm just spending all my money to chase this. Yeah. It's a good thing to chase. <laughs> my bank account doesn't think so. <laughs> um, now that we kind of know the kind of biological sense of music and everything, is there any advice or like any practical applications you could give to us and our listeners about how we can utilize music to like regulate our emotions on a daily basis? Yeah, yeah. Um, I do think there's, again, I come back to that word complexity. It's it's a really hard thing just to say do this. Um, it's not like, a, you know, a, a medication that is going to act the same on most people um, and have the same dose and work regardless of whether you're working or studying or sitting at home. There are so many... Um, conditions under which music is going to have a different effects. So it's really hard just to give general advice, and I, I guess that's why you know there's a really clear need for um, you know professional body like music therapy to do this when it's you know when when we need that level of responsibility in clinical settings. When we come back to non-clinical settings and everyday use, in addition to what I've said about you know being reflective and really trying to understand how it works for you. I think there are a few rules that can help us um, guide that reflection and and part of that comes down to it, it doesn't seem to be the type of music even though what we've said about sad music definitely you, know, you should be mindful of not continuing to have lots and lots of sad music or lots and lots of angry music be aware that you should be trying to use it to move you to a, a goal I think the other part of it is the the way you're using it or the purpose that you're using it for we can we can use music to um, distract us from something that's that's not pleasant, and w- music is very effective in you know helping us avoid those feelings. Um, again, be reflective that that's what you're using it for. Um, it's a good temporary mechanism, but in quite a few of the studies that we've looked at with how people use music and the outcomes for their well-being, uh, we've found that if people tend to use music for those diversionary or um, distraction mechanisms, uh, it tends to not be associated with positive outcomes. Over longer term, we see um, it's it's actually quite maladaptive. And this is similar to the broader non-music area that using, using um, avoidance emotion regulation strategies tend to not be good in the long term. So the, the types of strategies that are very positive for wellbeing are much more cognitive reappraisal doing mental work, uh, using music to actually uh, work through problems, problem solving. Um, And it does require effort. um, And sometimes that's not the natural way people are using music. You know, you're using it for relaxing, um, you know, to help help you exercise, to, you know, keep the beat up, to dance, to connect, but to actually have to do work with music. um, I guess that's, you know, it takes a bit of effort, um, perhaps training yourself to make an effort to do that sometimes. But if you're finding you, that you are someone who uses music to manage your emotions, it's probably worth doing a bit of um, reflection on that and saying, how can I use this? And perhaps look at the lyrics a little bit more closely and try to reflect on using music that actually is uh, more positive. And there's an enormous body of positive music. You know, I'm not saying happy music. I'm just saying music that actually works through not just articulating how you're feeling or how the, the artist, the composer is feeling, uh, but then what they do about that and reflecting. And even if they're, they're not doing it the same way as you do, think about, okay, that's what they did. How would I have done that? Uh, feeling empathy for the artist. So it's not saying that the music has to be, you know, come up with a solution. But if you're reflecting on what's happening in that, that situation in a, in a song, you can actually uh, use your own skills to empathise with that situation, consider what you would have done in that situation or what they might do, what's another way to do it. All of these things are are, are really helping you come up with alternative ways of seeing your own problems. So it's kind of like a toolkit of 
strategies that help you think a bit more broadly and then that generalises when you're going through things in your own life. You think, okay, I'm feeling that way but, and it's probably more likely, you've kind of been primed to think of other ways of looking at things and you're using music as a way of doing that. Um, So I do think, even though it requires a bit of effort, that's a, a good way to, to try it. Um, it doesn't necessarily... I'm just thinking of two studies that are challenging what I'm saying here. Um, <laughs> it doesn't always work out well. Um, I, I guess... Okay, the first one actually confirms what I said. We, we did some work with um, some veterans and we found those that had um, higher symptomatology, so had more symptoms of depression and anxiety, did use music a lot more than their, their colleagues. Um, they um, used it for emotional reasons more, um, but they tended to use it a lot for diversion and distraction, and it was associated with poor outcomes. Um, some of them were using it for what we called mental work, um, and we, we felt we found associations between positive well-being for them. So that kind of confirms what I'm saying. Um, the other study I was just thinking about was some work we did with music therapists here at University of Melbourne, um, Felicity Baker and Jeanette Tamplin and neuropsychologist Chantelle Roddy from Monash Uni. And these, um, the people we were uh, working with there had had um, spinal cord injuries and traumatic brain injury. And one of the key therapeutic um, early goals is to help them um, work through their self-concept. It's often a great barrier to healing in other ways because it's really difficult to accept the new reality of, of what your life looks like. So in that study, the music therapists were using songwriting to try to work through greater acceptance and um, transition of their self-concept to a new reality. And in that study, we found um, that the the songwriting actually did um, help them adjust to a new self-concept and often it was associated with um, <laughs> improved well-being. What we found for some people is that they were using um, the songwriting to get a lot more meaning in their life and unfortunately, if you're getting a lot more meaning out of those songs, you're probably coming to accept your self-concept, your new self-concept, a lot quicker and in great clarity. And that actually was associated with the higher levels of depression and anxiety. So that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's something that needs to be done and it's likely to be a gateway to then healing more quickly. It's inevitable. Uh, Ultimately, to heal, you need to accept that new self-concept. And songwriting, music therapy in this way, was uh, helping uh, to adjust through that, that timeline. I was just trying to apply that in my head to um, you know, what happens normally, that you need to be willing to, if you're going to do that mental work, that there could be some negative um, you know, paths along the way. So it's, it's not necessarily, great, use music, you're going to have a solution, it's all going to be great. I think it's, you know, it's a variable path and, and a lot of our journeys are. So as long as also as part of that doing mental work, using music to work through things, you're willing to understand that sometimes that's going to be really hard. And, you know, um, just like supporting a friend and hearing their difficult situations, you know, sure, you can empathise, but you can also, you know, relate to some of those feelings and that can be hard as well. Uh, Music's going to do the same thing. Um, So as long as you're willing to... That's part of the mental work, right? And, you know, through CBT or any other, um, you know, talk-based therapy, you're going to have to work through hard things to get to a positive outcome, but you learn a lot of strategies along the way. Yeah. I'm actually curious, so talking about the veteran studies and the spinal cord studies and all of this, as like um, researchers, what are some of the ethical considerations you think of before going into these studies, knowing how much music can manipulate emotions and cause maybe not the best experiences for these patients? Mm-mm, it's, it's a good question. Um, it's, it sort of reminds me, and I think, I think about ethical concerns in music, probably some of the 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 biggest discussion around this happened with um, some of the music genres that um, people considered um, dangerous or problematic. So, you know, heavy metal music and rap music um, back in the the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of concern about um, 
I guess ethics from two points of view. First, about you know whether we should be having this music when it, you know there were claims that it was associated with you know delinquency and drug use and and suicide and you know violence. Um, but in the response to that and some of the I think um, quite hysterical response to that, there was um, very famous you know court case with uh, Tipper Gore who was. Um, very significant in American, was the wife of Al Gore, who was a vice president. Um, she uh, led the charge to have a whole lot of um, stickers on albums that you know claimed that you know there were dangerous lyrics. You know, had a whole lot of controls put in place for concerts and MTV videos and everything, and was coming down very strong on the idea that this music was causing um, a lot of problematic behaviours in youth. There was um, some very eloquent responses to that. There's a very famous video, if you ever look it up, with Frank Zappa, who incredibly articulately explains why that's all rubbish. Um, <laughs> so the, the ethics of trying to stop music as well was a really interesting um, you know, discussion in this field about, um, you know, was music doing this? You know, it, it's kind of the, the great responsibility of science to be very clear on what it is saying and what it's not saying. So I, I think that whole period showed the fallacy of what people were claiming about music. I, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that sort of work, but it's very correlational. Um, and what's generally regarded is that the relationship, there is a relationship between people listening to or a preference for some types of music and some you know problem behaviours, but it's correlation, and you'll find there's there's a third variable, um, like low self esteem or um, you know difficult home circumstances that are likely to be the cause of both of those. Why people then seek out those types of music, and why they also uh, behave in ways that might be you know antisocial or, or problematic for themselves. So the science can tell you, okay, that's why that's wrong. And this is what you really should be focusing on, um, but. I think, nonetheless, music does have that power and, and you're right, we should be aware of that. I think in most ways that it's used, it's it's very much involving the person themselves having choice. So if we look at music therapy, it's a very holistic process that involves a relationship between a therapist and their client or a group of clients and it's incredibly respectful, it's incredibly um, focused on the person themselves. I think self-management, as long as we're reflective, we're the ones taking control of that. I don't know if there are that many situations that are inflicted on us in which music would be used unethically. I think probably the, the obvious ones are things like elevator music and music <laughs> in, <laughs> in supermarkets and in restaurants. And yeah, it is, it is manipulating our behaviour. Um, you know, some great research by um, David Hargraves led, led that team on um, you know how we how restaurants and supermarkets and shops all use music quite intentionally to um, you know either make you stay longer and buy more slow music in the supermarket will make you hang around longer and buy more or in a restaurant where they want to get one lot through and get the next lot in they might speed up the tempo. Um, even the, the type of music, there was a study that played either German music or French music in a, a liquor store and people were actually influenced to buy more French wine or German oh, wine. Wow. So it's quite subtle things going on <laughs> there. So yes, they are influencing. But in terms of unethical, I, I don't know if any of that comes down to, you know, people were already doing what they were doing. It sort of nudged them in a certain way. Um, Without their, without their knowledge, I guess. So I guess there is some concern there. But in terms of really powerful effects, um, I don't think there's negative effects. A lot of the things we've spoken about, concerts, you know, yeah, having a strong effect on you in a positive way. In the ways that it could be negative, I think it's people doing that. We just need to make sure there's enough information around. I think the big responsibility of this discipline is information, not just music psychology, but psychology, trying to provide enough information that people who do want to self-manage, which is happening more and more, and we need to, we can't you know, provide professional support for everyone, we really need to bolster that so people can be um, much more informed about how they use anything, music, nature, you know, um, 
stimulants, what everyone's doing, we need to keep that information up, but in a way that people can actually use. I think at the moment we're still, as I said earlier, just flooding people with too much information, so it's actually quite hard for people to to use that in their own health keeping. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Wow. Um, Now that we kind of have a good understanding of how music has been used in the past and how we can use it now, um, one kind of last question I have for you is what do you think the future directions are for music psychology or more personally, what would you like to see from the industry? I guess everywhere is changing because of digital technology. So I, I, I'm interested to see how music psychology is going to rise to the changes out there. We know that AI can produce music um, and for people interested in perception and cognition of music, I know that's that's fascinating for them. I, I've got a, a few colleagues really interested in the development of musicianship. I'd love to know what they think about you know the AI's development and how that... Um, artificial intelligence learns music is it the same way that people learn music you know there's so much that we can look at in digital technology in my own area in in music and emotions I think digital technologies have enormous potential to help us measure things better one of the the big challenges that we have trying to understand emotions is to make sure it's valid Um, you know I did a lot of work in labs trying to elicit very strong emotional responses to music and you can imagine if you're sitting in a a lab you've got wires hooked up to you and someone saying great this is his piece of music that you said was really special to you let's listen to it Uh, it's not necessarily going to induce the same experience that you have when you naturally listen to that music so it's hard to um, elicit the same experience in a lab but it's very hard to measure properly if you're not in the lab Um, hard to control all those other variables hard to get accurate biological measures. I think the future is going to change that. I think um, the automated monitoring from personal devices is going to get clever and cleverer. You know, these little Fitbit things that measure, you know, heart rate and all sorts of things. I can't imagine how it does it. But, you know, if we can start using these to measure emotional responses, I think we're going to get much richer information about how people are reacting in in concerts. You know, there's been some lovely studies attempting to measure I think in operas, you know, the audience's responses. Um, But again, there's lots of stuff they're wearing and it doesn't feel like that natural experience. I think that's going to change a lot in the future that we'll be able to really get inside people's experiences much more accurately. So I'm excited about that part of it. I think the other thing just personally I'm really interested in is moving more away from a lot of that internal measurement that I've been doing. I've been very interested in the individual response and I think getting into that, you know, the transcendence and the awe and the wonder of music is something that hasn't been tapped that much yet. We, we know it's there. there. There's been some really nice um, studies done by um, a, a great psychologist over in Geneva, um, Klaus Schürer, who claimed that um, a lot of the measurement of emotion wasn't adequate for music. It was not capturing some of the more what he called aesthetic emotions to music and from some large studies that his team did, they found that wonder and awe was a really prominent factor in how people you know, felt to music. And in our studies, we've also found that when we find out, uh, ask people how they use music in addition to emotion regulation and social reasons and physical reasons, this awe and transcendence comes out as another really important factor. And I don't think we've now sort of capitalised on that for self-management again. And I, I think the whole psychology area is starting to move into be a bit braver in, in some of those areas and we're seeing a lot of work done on nature and trying to describe why nature can be so therapeutic. And I think a big part of some of the theories in that are about being immersed in something outside yourself and I can see a lot of parallels between that work and some of these uses of music that might be described as more transcendent. So personally, I'm hoping to move more in that area. I'd love some students who are also interested in that area because I think that's um, you know another whole potential way that music can be really beneficial. We've talked a lot about self-management throughout this interview, and I was wondering what are three tips or three physical like self-management tools us and our listeners could use to use music to help us with our emotions or our well-being? Mm. 
Um, one of the most common ways people tend to use music is to relax for stress. So, yep, there's there's a lot of evidence that music can be very effective in relaxing people. We did a, a nice study a long time ago that we actually had a, a bunch of students that we told they'd have to do a public speaking task in front of a few of their lecturers and the topic was stats. I would pass out. (laughs) So most of our students weren't too happy about that and we had them hooked up to to measurements um, and we measured their heart rate and blood pressure and asked them how they were feeling. So those students who who did that felt very stressed. They didn't have to actually do the uh, presentation, which was great. But we also had another group of uh, students who did the same process, but they had some relaxing music on in the background and none of those physiological responses happened. We didn't see any increase in blood pressure or heart rate. Um, So it it was a really effective remover of incredible stress. Public speaking is a very stressful task. Um, I, I think, so number one tip, yes, you, you choose what's relaxing, find something relaxing and do be ready to use it when you're, um, when you're expecting something coming along that might be stressful. We know anticipating a stressor is much worse than the actual event. So be ready to use music. I have it ready in my car. I know exactly when I need to use it and I know what's going to do it. And, and work a little bit at finding out what actually works because sometimes what you think is relaxing doesn't actually work for you. So sometimes it can be actually quite... Know, aggressive loud music is what works to calm you down. So tip one, uh, work out what works for you for relaxing. Tip two is um, definitely around emotion regulation. Uh, again, I, I think I've already spoken quite a bit about reflecting on how how you need to use music for, for your purposes and uh, trying to cut out the things that don't work. And it can be really hard because it's really not great music you know we know we love lots of different types of music but sometimes it just doesn't work for a certain situation doesn't mean you don't have to abandon it throw it out but you know just be more mindful of what context it works for you Um, and sometimes it's not music that works for me I can't listen to music in certain situations because it's either too absorbing or it gets me um, revved up in a way that I don't need at that time um, I can't use it when driving anymore because it just pulls me too much in and distracts me too much from what I should be doing. Um, so understanding what works for you. Uh, a third tip. Um, oh, I've got so many tips I'm trying to, <laughs> try to settle down. Um, I, I guess just being um, open to more than your usual uses of music. Often we get really stayed in a particular way of using music. Um, for me, it was very much a, a, a personal thing. You know, I really like to listen to it on my own <laughs> and only do that. Um, and it took a while for me to open up and be willing to um, share music with other people. And then another whole realm of um, you know, wonder opened up that all of a sudden I was sharing similar feelings and understanding, hey, someone else feels just as strongly as me. And that, as we talked about earlier, doubled or intensified the feeling. So being willing to try using music in different ways um, than you used to because you might find you start building up that toolkit of strategies that you weren't aware of before. Um, I've got one final one, which is not a tip, but just an interesting thing that from our research we've found the effects of music on cognitions as well hasn't been studied that much. You might have seen some studies about is it good to study, you know, with background music? Is it actually going to help or not? Um, There's some really mixed findings there. So I guess a kind of a tip is being wary of using music while you're studying um, because we have found some research saying that that's not helpful, having it during... there, There is some conflicting and it depends on your personality. Apparently extroverts will manage that better. It could help them because it keeps them more aroused and they need that arousal while they're studying. But generally, I think from our research, we've found that if anything, it's better to use music after, straight after you study or a little bit of time after because what that does is works on the processes after learning. We know from, you know, our cognition studies in, in memory that you've got the learning time and then you've got the consolidation of that material into long-term memory. And it's the consolidation process that's going to benefit from additional arousal. Remember we spoke about emotional music increasing arousal and that can really help consolidate long-term memories better. So um, I I guess just thinking about a student um, group, we we often do use music while studying. Perhaps just be, be aware 
of um, when you use it and try it out. Perhaps try out, you know, trying studying in silence, try playing the, the great music afterwards. See if it makes any difference because we tested people a week after and we found that if they played music, arousing music, enjoyable music, emotional music afterwards, that's when we got the better uh, recall a week later. Whereas if it was during, there was no improvement. Wow, I'm definitely going to try yeah, that. These are amazing tips. And yeah. thank you for saying this before our final exam. Yeah. <laughs> I need these. So <laughs> I needed this before yeah, swap back. Exactly. Um, well, thank you so much for sharing all of this and giving us tips and everything, especially those last few. <laughs> I feel like we really needed those. Um, I'm taking a mental note of all of those. And yeah. right after this interview, <laughs> I'm going to instill it in everything in my life. Yeah. <laughs> it's been really interesting, like learning about all the different aspects of music psychology, like the more emotional, the more biological. Is there anything specific that you want to promote or recommend to anyone? Anything about your research or anything like that? No, just really, really interested to talk to people from psychology. Um, love working with psychology students. So or doors always open if you want to come and talk to me about music psychology. Um, definitely have projects available going forward for you know, uh, graduate students. So love to talk to people about that. We've got a study going at the moment on um, using music for social surrogacy. So using music as a friend. So this is being run from Finland um, and University of Queensland are the two main leads in this research, but we're trying to get a global sample of people to see whether people are using music as a friend, you know, in the absence of um, uh, having contact with other people, does it actually fulfil that purpose? Because a lot of people, particularly during COVID, uh, reported that, um, you know, music could really be a backup when they couldn't be around another person. So maybe I can share the, the details of that and you can post it somewhere because uh, we're, we're starting off with a bit of a survey but then we'll move into using uh, an app that monitors people's uses of music and tries to explore a little bit as to whether they're, they're using it for those purposes. Yeah, this was amazing. This was really so good. much. <laughs> yeah. It's been great talking to you. Thanks for the opportunity. <laughs> Thank you for really coming. Nice. So for our listeners, we hope you enjoyed our discussions. Join us next time as we explore more fascinating topics in psychology. Thank you, everyone.